You're listening to the Meditation and Attachment Podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.m-e-t-t-a-g-r-o-u-p.org. So tonight is an ideal parent figure uh, protocol meditation. Um, some of you have done these before and some of you have not. So for those who've already done this, uh, my, see if you can find some patience as I explain uh, what it is <coughs> again. The ideal parent figure uh, protocol is a guided meditation which is intended to uh, allow you to imagine ideal parent figures. Ideal parent figures are not a competition for your actual parents. It's not meant to be a correction for your actual parents. It's not meant to be a comparison to your actual parents. We want to try and create a pristine, <coughs> uh, uh, imagined uh, parental experience so that we can see the database uh, in the perceptual process with these ideal uh, experiences. <coughs> We know that these are not actual experiences and we're not intending to, to trick the mind into believing that. We're not attempting to alter uh, what actually happened to you with a fantasy version that's better. We want you to be able to be with the things that happened to you just the way that they are. Oftentimes uh, we had a uh, uh, an idea of a kind of response that we had wanted that we often did not get. And so we do want to be able to imagine receiving what that ideal response would have been. The reason that we want to do that is so that when we go through the process of perception in the present moment, the imagination is free to imagine for ourselves ideal outcomes to things that are going on now. Um, if you understand <coughs> And this is a is a largely I'm going to frame this largely in the way that uh, Buddhism and Buddhist meditation uh, talks about it. You have the object that can be sensed. I'm going to get my hand out of the blanket. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> and you have <laughs> the capacity to sense. This is the capacity to sense. When they make contact in, in Buddhism, contact means that the object that can be sensed has met the capacity to sense. A consciousness of that sensing experience arises, which awareness knows. So the first part of this is discerning the difference between awareness, which is the ongoing knowingness of the mind, and the individual arising of sensing experiences, or the consciousness of sensing experience. <coughs> When the object and the sense capacity to sense are no longer in contact, the, that moment of consciousness ends and awareness knows it. That's the, the basic idea of this. When contact is made and the consciousness of the sensing experience arises, the first uh, response to it is whether the sensing experience itself is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. So in, um, in Pali, that would be nama rupa, 
nada for the sensing experience and then vedna nada for the, the evaluation of whether it's pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And then what happens is it, it is compared to the perceptual database of previously sensed experiences and that unfixated vibrating formlessness uh, is fixated based on the match that you make in the perceptual database and then the present moment becomes the experience. Uh, <clears throat> I talked about this yesterday in terms of conceptual reality is then form, sorry, uh, ultimate reality, the pure sensing experience is then formed into conceptual reality, the thing that we've made it into. If you're not aware of this process, then the present moment becomes confined by the past, by the past sensing experiences. Because we're creating a view of the world, self and world in that moment, if in our previous uh, experiences or uh, capacities to imagine, we didn't imagine all of the possibilities that are presented in front of us, we in some sense can't see them. If you can't see them, you can't take them. And so the, the process of ideal parent figure is really meant not to uh, be a correction for the past, strictly speaking, but to begin to seed the database uh, of perception with these ideal possibilities so that when you're experiencing the present moment, uh, and uh, you, you can see these possibilities that weren't there before, so, and then the mind can choose them. The body-mind can choose them. And I think what you'll notice if you do this practice is that <clears throat> the body-mind just starts choosing things differently than it did before. There's no effort required. You just see the possibilities in the present moment differently than you saw them before, and you take uh, different actions, different uh, choices. This often uh, has a bittersweet quality to it. One is that you're able to recognize different possibilities in the present moment and choose them. And then there's the recognition that all the way along through your life, these possibilities were probably available to you and you didn't choose them. And mostly you didn't choose them because you couldn't see that they were there. Uh, one of the Western analogies is that you're sitting on the floor by the table, picking the crumbs that fall off the table, not realizing that there's a chair with a name tag with your name on it at the table, and that you could have joined the feast at any time had you been able to read the, the, the place card that had your name on it. <coughs> We can use ideal parent figure to also uh, work through uh, trauma. Um, it's a little different in how it's used. Usually you come into the trauma after it's over and, and the ideal parent figures provide the comfort that you had wanted after the traumatic event that you may not have received. And then you can go uh, to before it happens and imagine that it uh, that they intervene and so that it doesn't happen. Often there's a, a deep desire for somebody to have saved us from that. So, but uh, with ideal parent figure, we don't go actually into the, the trauma experience itself. And then also you can use ideal parent figure uh, in uh, imagining an ideal partner. So that if you're not partnered and you, you're, you notice that you 
uh, in your dating life tend to pick the same wrong person over and over again, <coughs> that you can begin to imagine <coughs> different partners than what you're, you're conditioned to respond to, and then that creates an attraction with people that you uh, in the past may not have found uh, attractive, which is, is also an interesting uh, phenomena to watch. Um, <coughs> and then the last thing that you can do with ideal parent figure is to begin to work through uh, the, the schemas Tomorrow I'll talk more about mentalizing, but there's a couple of aspects of mentalizing. In early childhood, in the dyadic experience with your uh, primary caregiver, you learn uh, basic mentalizing. Um, and these are di different, differentiating uh, yourself from the other, learning to control the spontaneous re reactivity. Uh, understanding the difference between your inner experience and your outer experience, and then beginning to understand the difference between a cognitive experience and a, an affective experience, so a thinking experience from a, an emotional experience. And you learn these in that dyadic relationship depending on how well it went. You may not learn uh, mentalizing well in that sense of that the early stuff, but then we have the mentalizing that comes with this, the next, uh, next level of development, which is this relational piece that begins in your uh, early childhood as well, but much later in terms of attachment. By the time you're two uh, years old, your attachment response is pretty well fixed, and uh, you have a 70% chance of, of, of living your entire life with that attachment strategy. That's something catastrophic, something great, or, or you have to try to intentionally change it, has to intervene. But for most people, uh, the attachment conditioning that you settle on by the time you're two years old is the one that you use throughout your life. <coughs> the database of how so in some sense, I like to talk about it in the working model that you hold of yourself and the expectation you have of your own capacities really is, is, is pretty set by the time you're two years old. Um, and so uh, what you might be able to infer just from that sentence is that it's not actually related to what you do in the world, right? It's, it's a view of yourself that comes from how well you, you were taken care of as an infant, not about your performance in the world. Um, <clears throat> what could you have done at two years old to improve your care? Let me rephrase. What didn't you try to do to improve your care when you were two years old, right? Do you notice the process of how a two-year-old attempts to get care? First, they look really cute as cute as they can possibly look is what they do first. But if that didn't work, often, uh, you know, and this is very, very apparent with secure kids, is they look confused. I just looked really cute and nobody's, nobody responded. What's up with that? 
and then it becomes painful and uh, they whimper and if nobody comes they intermittently cry and if nobody comes they cry continuously and nobody comes they tantrum and then if nobody comes they go into anticlyptic depression where the whole system shuts down to preserve calories because the perception of threat is so great. Um, if this happens to you over and over and again in childhood, of course, it affects the way the brain develops. If you develop a capacity to shut off, that's actually a physical manifestation in the brain associated with dismissing strategies. But when you get to be about four years old and the left brain turns on and you have the capacity for autobiographical uh, um, memory, you begin to develop a second uh, strand of mentalizing, which is based on your actual interaction, your actual experience of relating to other people. <coughs> if you um, have adverse conditions as that uh, um, process develops, then you develop what in Buddhism we call fixed views. Fixed views are around what you can expect from other people. And uh, in, the, in the work that we do, we use the Rome Group's schema uh, evaluation strategies, and they have 18 different schemas that uh, form in response to your interaction with other people. And these are really hard to uproot. Uh, if you're familiar with coming at it just from a straight meditation point of view, really penetrating into fixed views is hard to do. They're very distorting in terms of the, the, the way that the world manifests. Uh, and they're, they're there in there, locked in there. It's, and you each time the uh, universal or the ultimate uh, reality is formed into conceptual reality, it passes through these fixed views and it, it creates a distortion that's almost always been there because it comes online uh, so early. So the Zen people have a phrase which I quite like, which is, uh, what water ask the fish? <clears throat> when you're, you've been in it the whole time, it's very hard to begin to see how it operates. But then the ideal parent figure uh, protocol can be used to come into uh, experiencing how these fixed views were developed and beginning to offer alternatives to them. Um, so some, some people have none. If you're toward the secure end of things, you tend to, to not fixate your views as much. And then many people have a small number uh, of them. And then depending on how adverse your early uh, conditioning is and how well your relationships went over the course of your life, you can develop quite a few. Um, at a certain point, they, they, they sort of form into modes of being, these fixed views. Um, and, mm -hmm. I could. Um, I have one called mistrust and abuse, which is associated with physical or sexual abuse. And I have one that's called defectiveness, which is also associated with those. Um, um, 
but then you could have um, then that those are tend to be more s associated with disorganized <coughs> native disorganized attachment but you could have an abandonment uh, 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 schema you could have a grandiose schema you could have a unrelentingly high standards schema um, <coughs> Social isolation is a schema. Mm -hmm. There are 18 of them that are mappable in, in this that particular system. Let's see if I can think of any others. So with the defectiveness schema, the idea is that you think that there is something inherently wrong with you, that people will discover and then leave you. And so you become defensive about what you let people know about you so that they won't discover that there's something ultimately defective about you that would cause them to leave. In the mistrust and abuse uh, schema, you, you <coughs> assume that you're going to be exploited. And so you're constantly on guard and in examining every interaction with other people to see how they're going to exploit or abuse you. Um, what they tend to do is undermine epistemic trust. Epistemic trust is the foundation of secure relationships. And what it means is that you believe that the person is telling you the truth and you believe that what they're telling you is meant to be helpful to you. It's very hard to maintain epistemic trust and the uh, schema of mistrust and abuse at the same time. <laughs> You're constantly examining everything that somebody says it does to figure out how they're going to get you. It's very hard to relax into this idea that they're telling you the truth and that what they're telling you is meant to be helpful. <coughs> grandiose, the grandiose schema is the one where you think that everybody should be taking care of you and that you shouldn't have to reciprocate for that care. Um, <coughs> So it's the one that tends to inflate. Uh, grandiose entitlement is the, the, you have a sense of entitlement. So as you undertake the practice um, of ideal parent figure, you start in the beginning just with establishing, and what we're going to do here on this retreat is just see if we can establish these ideal parent figures. And then you move through this process of exploring. Um, one of the things about uh, attachment is that it's paired with exploration and, uh, uh, and exploring what's meaningful to you. Depending on what your attachment outcome was uh, in childhood, your capacity to explore will be greatly affected by that. Secure people tend to explore things that have genuine meaning to them, whether that means that it has meaning in society or meaning to other people. They really do pursue things that are interesting to them and have meaning for them. Uh, dismissing adults tend to pursue things that have high social value, whether it has meaning to them personally or not, because they like the position of power that they get from attaining high social status. Mm -hmm. So that the exploration is around positioning themselves for the secondary gain, not for the primary gain of exploration. Mm 
They want to have the, they explore things and they attempt to achieve high social status so that they can use it to get the things that they want rather than pursuing through exploration the things that they want. Preoccupied people, uh, <coughs> I'm going to just say this once. When I say preoccupied people, I mean people who use a preoccupied strategy, not that they're uh, limited to that necessarily. Attachment strategies activate in the experience of abandonment, and if you don't have the experience of ab abandonment, they don't necessarily activate. People who use a preoccupied strategy tend to abandon their exploration very early, and so they don't develop much skills in the way of exploring uh, what's meaningful to them. They may not know what's meaningful to them, and they may not know how to explore well enough to figure out what has meaning. That's one of the limitations of that strategy. And then disorganized people tend to explore in fits and starts because their their capacity to regulate themselves emotionally is um, not great and they don't trust anybody to help them emotionally regulate so that their exploration is constantly curtailed by emotional dysregulation that they're unable to, to do much about. They, the, the strategies that they tend to employ are very inefficient and take a lot of resources and so there's less available for exploration. <coughs> Is that all making sense? Um, so after the initial part of uh, uh, ideal parent figure where you're establishing reliable, uh, uh, safe uh, caregivers uh, and you are able to explore with them initially, there's a, a, a period of tracking the uh, activations the attachment activations in your real life and beginning to trace them back to the origins of them. <coughs> this is extremely useful in developing uh, your coherent narrative. You can link the attachment activations in the present day to the experiences that caused uh, your sensitivities to those things using the ideal parent figure protocol. And it's a very intuitive process and often very surprising in terms of what the present-day manifestation of the early conditioning is. And then you can begin to repair that so that you respond differently in the present moment uh, than you did in the past. Um, <coughs> then you can move into uh, um, uh, the uh, uh, partner figure protocol or you can move into working with uh, adult schemas. And then when you've worked through all of that, you should be secure and have no need to do this anymore. <coughs> then you can get on to enlightenment. <laughs> I mean, it, it isn't a long uh, um, process really. Um, I, th I think that in, in a few years you should expect to be able to, to do this work if you devote sufficient resources to it. <coughs> now you may say that a few years, three or four or five years, is not a short period of time. 
but 70% of people finish their life out with the same attachment strategies that they started with, and that whole rest of your life is actually much longer, and the suffering that's caused by these early conditionings that you don't overcome are continuous over that entire period of time. So to me, it seems like a great bargain to actually do this. And then, and then at the end of it, of course, you're uh, free to explore what's meaningful to you, and you have the skills in order to do it, and hopefully in the process you've developed a social network that will support you in doing it. I know from um, people, and I think there are people in this room who would say the same, that, that uh, to have gone from a, 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 a really not much of any kind of social network to one that functions really well and is very supportive as possible and to do, and, and do it in a short period of time. The reason why this is important for the ultimate goal of meditation, which is enlightenment, is it's going to be very difficult for you to actually be able to go into the process of pursuing that without the social network that supports you. And if you can't put one together, then that's also going to limit your ability to, to, to go deep into that direction of the path. Any questions about that so far? That's my big sales pitch <coughs> to get you to be willing to do this. Um, and then uh, you can uh, give me direct feedback in the interviews uh, about how it's landing for you and, and I can make some adjustments for you that you would just then do in, in, in addition to or, or in a replacement of um, the instructions you're going to get because uh, I'm going to give group instructions which tend to be fairly general. All right. Shall we just begin? So I want you to bring your attention to the body, <coughs> settling into the body, closing the eyes, scanning through the body, looking for any tension you might be holding, and seeing if you can release it. Now, bringing your attention to the breath, extending the out-breath. See if you can extend each out-breath a little bit longer than the one before it. This is meant to activate the, sympathetic, the parasympathetic nervous system and calm the body down. You want to go into a deeply relaxed state. So extending the out-breath. No attention at all on the in-breath, just let it do whatever it does. <coughs> Extending the out-breath, deeply relaxing the body-mind.
extending the out-breath, deeply relaxing the body-mind. Now what I'd like you to do is imagine your ideal mother figure. So there's really no restrictions on this. It's not based on your actual mother. It's not a correction for your actual mother if you had one. This is an ideal mothering presence, ideally suited to you. See if you can imagine her in some detail, in particular paying attention to how she is with you, how she responds to you. Notice that she very consistently responds to you in exactly the way that you need her to, in exactly the way that you've always wanted someone to respond to you. Notice how she's able to express physical affection for you in exactly the way that you need her to. If you want her to come close, she's able to come close. If you need her to keep her distance, she does that as well. So she's not imposing anything on you. An expression of physical affection that's ideally suited to you.
Now what I'd like you to do is imagine your ideal father figure, different from your family of origin. It's not based on your actual father, not a correction for your actual father. An entirely imaginary ideal father figure. Perfectly suited to you. Notice in particular how he is with you, how he responds to to you, how sensitively attuned he is to the subtlest changes in your mind states and how he always responds exactly the way that you need him to, exactly the way you've always wanted someone to respond to you. Notice how he's able to express physical affection for you uh, in exactly the way that you want him to. If you want him to come close, he comes close. If you want him to give you space, he gives you space. The touch is never unwanted. He consistently responds to you with physical touch in exactly the way that you need him to, in exactly the way You've always wanted him to.
So now what I'd like you to do is imagine an ideal environment for you to grow up in as a young child. So this could be the house you did or the place you did grow up in, the apartment you did grow up in. It could be based on that or it could be com something completely different, something completely imaginary. But what we're looking for here is an ideal space for you as a young child to grow up in and to thrive. See if you can imagine that. So now imagine that you're in this ideal space, you're a young child, and your ideal parent figures are there with you, supporting you in your play, in your exploration, in exactly the way that you need them to. Notice how your ideal parent figures are with each other. 
They're very collaborative in their care for each other. They take good care of each other so that you're never put in a position where you need to take care of them. They're, they're able to express physical affection with each other in an easy, comfortable way. But you never get a sense that they would be so caught up in each other that they would lose track of you. When you're with them, you know that their focus is on you and on taking care of you in exactly the way that you need to be taken care of. They never get so caught up in each other that they lose track of you. You can feel in their presence that you're the most important thing to them. Taking good care of you is the most important thing to them. And, but this isn't an, an intrusive uh, experience. They would never demand that you take care of them. In fact, they would prevent you from trying to do that. They know very clearly that they're the adults and they're there to take care of you. And they do it in a way that's perfectly suited to you so that you feel free to explore whatever has meaning to you, whatever has interest to you, knowing that they're there supporting you in every way that you need it. Notice that you're able to connect physically with these ideal parent figures in exactly the way that you would like to connect to them. That it feels safe and comfortable. Really take in what that's like to be able to do that whenever you need it. If you need space, they give you space. If you want closeness, they give you closeness. It's never harming. Your ideal parent figures would never harm you.
So now what I'd like you to do is take your uh, ideal parent figures with you as you explore a different environment. Take them out of the <coughs> ideal uh, location to some other space and explore what's meaningful to you, noticing that they're with you, supporting you in exactly the way that you need them to, in a way that you always wanted someone to. Could be anywhere. Could be anything. Notice that your ideal parent figures never take over the exploration. They're there just to support you. If you need something from them, they're right there supporting you. But if you need space just to explore, they're there stepping back and supporting you uh, with all of the spaciousness that you need. You're free to explore because you know that they're there. And if you need them, they'll respond immediately but they never do it for you. It's really up to you to figure out what it is that has meaning to you. So make a deep impression of these ideal parent figures and then find your way out of there. I'll count from five to one. When I reach one, you'll be fully present and fully awake. Five, four, three, two, one. Any comments or questions? Um, pretty much spent the whole time being angry at what I did have, <laughs> not thinking about what I wanted, <coughs> what would be ideal. Uh, that's a common thing that happens. Uh, what I want you to do the next time it happens is just drop it. <coughs> no. 
don't put anything into it. We're not trying to compare or or correct. Uh, we we really are just attempting to create a pristine entry into the database. So that's what we're doing. One of the things that happens in childhood is that the 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 experience of what we don't have that we wanted becomes so painful that we pinch off the imagination so we can't imagine it anymore. We do that because it saves us pain. But then you come out of childhood and the conditions change and you're no longer uh, restricted to that environment in most cases, um, but that doesn't uh, relieve the pinches on the imagination the imagination that's been shut off to, to those possibilities remains shut off. And so uh, one of the things that we really do in this is to begin to pull the pinches off so that we can let the imagination expand into these areas of what we might want. And that that's going to be tremendously useful. But if that <coughs> if the bios pop up, just drop them fast like a stone. Better than the one you had? He, he, he and I did not have a relationship. Mm. I, I literally could not, you know, mother popped up like, oh, oh there's the image, and, he's, and father, it was like completely vacant. Okay. And all I could do is get little clips of the father I had, but no imaginary father whatsoever. Right. <laughs> like, I just went everywhere with my imaginary mom, and it was good. Okay. So that's great. But then also what's being revealed is, and I think that this is also something that really is useful to begin to understand, is you've completely pinched off that. So um, <clears throat> the idea then is, is this invitation to allow it to come back. No, so I should tell you that when I did this practice, it took about two months to get a fully formed ideal parent figures. Uh, and for the most part, they remain drawings out of a 40s magazine. <laughs> sort of. <laughs> At least they're colored in with watercolor now, because they started out just as black lines. <clears throat> because I had totally pinched off imagining something good. <clears throat> Mm -hmm. um, so I've been scheduling and rescheduling ITF appointments. <laughs> uh, this is the first time I've, and I've been so looking forward to really hearing what it's really all about, mm. experiencing my own present. Um, and I was really resistant to it. Oh, really? <coughs> yeah, because it's a painful subject. Mm. And, um, it's painful if you get stuck in um, the bios, <coughs> the bio parents. If you, if you just drop them like a hot rock and go into the ideal parent figures, you're creating an alternative to that. No, and, and I did exactly that. And it was really pleasurable and really great. And wow, so after two months, I'm, you know, 
Good. Oh, you're onto something, Joe. <laughs> well, this is the uh, Dan Brown. We affectionately call him DB. <laughs> DB's material. <laughs> um, I think one of the reasons the Meta Group program works so well with his stuff is we were working in the three areas, the same three areas that he was working in, uh, and uh, and. We really like this ideal parent figure protocol as a way of doing the, the reparenting stuff. It also begins to really uh, illustrate the, uh, the coherent, or to make your narrative coherent. What happened to you, for instance, uh, Sam, that you would pinch off the possibility of a good father figure? So, this, so that you begin to uh, understand in a coherent way what your experience must have been with him. That that would be the, the the choices that you made. Anyone else? Some of that I, I always think of zero control saying as you know, and I know someone else said it, but I, I imagine that anyone is your parent as your parent that was your parent once, right? Cognitively, historically, in past lives, some sort of vow of compassion. And, um, just you know, the way of like everyone was your mother. Right. Yes. I, I like the version where I've had intercourse on every square inch of the earth in the past life. But, uh, <laughs> I'm a bad person. I did like a backstop of like my my dearest friends and and parents of friends. Mm-hmm. Great. It's like, you know, it's just like, wow, this could exist. You know? Yeah. And I always would joke that I, I'm scared of people that have perfect parents, you know, because they're just. Because they're so boring. I don't even know if they exist. But they kind of um, yeah. It's uh, about. 30% of the population has good enough parenting. Um, and it's a really low bar. <laughs> That's the shocking part. Um, I think it's a... It, um, what we're the territory that we want to get into is the thing that we always the, the parents we always wanted to really touch into that deeply. What was it that we really wanted? Uh, you know, uh, and we'll continue to delve into this. Uh, but the parents who could really see us and who were delighted in us um, with all of our special gifts and all of the rest of it, that really w were there to promote our development so that we could then fly off and have an amazing exploration. And uh, often uh, in all of those situations uh, in childhood where it didn't quite go the way that we wanted it to, there, there was going to be a trace of what it is that we did want. And that's what we're attempting to free up. <coughs> because the more that we pinched that off, uh, the less what we really want to have out of the present moment is available to us. 
And if you don't know that you really want it and you see the choice in front of you, you won't value it enough to take it. And that's what we're really trying to get at. To take in the moment the thing that's available to you, because the things that have been lost to the past are gone. You can't have them. There's no sense in spending any time at all longing for the things that have been lost already. This, is, this practice is really only about uh, understanding well enough what you want so that if you see it available to you in the present moment, you don't pass it by in the way that you might have before. Or too afraid. I think that for me, the, I'm, I tend to be a more regret-oriented person. I don't take the things that I want because I'm too afraid to take them. Uh, as opposed to the people who blunder around and <coughs> create actions that they regret, uh, actions that they have remorse over having taken. I really have a life of not taking rather than doing the wrong thing. Anyone else? We're actually out of time. Time for yin.